We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What's a What's even better than an Arsenal Vision podcast where the panel ignores my questions? An Arsenal Vision podcast where the panel ignores your questions. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Paul is here. You can find him on Twitter at Pausing in My Pants. Hello, Paws. Woohoo! Scott is here. You can find him on Twitter at O underscore that underscore crab. Hello, Scott. Howdy. Good lord, man. Your introductions are the <laughs> worst, for fuck's sake. You really, you got that stats guy thing nailed. It's uh, it's all info and numbers. It's not so much of the razzle-dazzle, but that's okay. Um, Clive will be here down the line answering your questions as well. Uh, Tim will answer a specific question related to scouting Brazilians, the players. Okay, let's keep that straight. Uh, we will also have Tim's video preview of the Leicester match coming on Friday on Patreon. And for those of you who have signed up for Patreon, thank you so much. Uh, we love you. We appreciate you. And for those of you who haven't, we love you and appreciate you as well. We're really just thrilled to have you as a listener. So thank you. This is a mailbag episode, which basically just means we are going to answer your questions. Or, uh, in keeping with the pod tradition, I'm going to ask your questions, and then the panel is going to answer whatever they feel like answering. So let's see how it goes. Let's get it started. Uh, Paul, are you ready? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh. You uh, you going to answer the questions you feel, or do you think you're probably just going to talk about whatever you want, uh, if you had to guess? Uh, I think I might. Okay. Well, let's try No, I think it will. I'm going to answer the first one. Okay. Well, we're going to start with a question that came really from two people, Brendan at Gunner Outpost and also Binoy Shah at Bugsy Shah, both kind of asked the same question. So let's ask it now. If you were Arsenal's sporting director, God help us, and you could either buy a first-team quality wide midfielder 
slash forward or left-sided center half in January and the rest of the squad stayed exactly the same, which would you choose? What do you think we need in January? Left-sided center half. So, Koscielny's coming back. We don't know. We hope. We don't. We, we hope. We don't know about Dinos. I'm not as down on Mustafi as you are, but I recognize he he does the Mustafi thing about every two games. I like Socrates. I like him a lot. Um, my my tendency would be if uh, we haven't sorted out our centre back thing by January, that's where I'd put my next investment. Um, partly that's because I think we have a lot of good forwards and the manager has to pick a format that allows them to shine. Uh, Mkhitaryan started, what, four games for us in the Premier League. In my book, it should have been eight. Um, I wouldn't want to crowd him out. I think he's, uh, I think he's been really big for us when he played. Um, I certainly like the idea of a wide man option and it, some somebody who gives us something different, uh, some real pace, one on one, terrorizing their defense. So I think it's a really. I tell you this. I think it's a really good question. You could go either way. It kind of depends on where we're at, uh, December January timeframe. Um, uh, our stats aren't where they need to be, and I I do think there's something to that, and that'll come back to bite us in some form. They're not they're not good defensively, and they're not good attacking wise. Um, so how about I, a left-sided center half who also contributes 15 goals? Um, that would be ideal because mm-hmm. if we got our set pieces, if we really got some stuff going with set pieces, he could be banging them in off the set pieces. Yeah, like a Shaquille so, O'Neal type, you know, someone who can who can defend yeah. the rim, but also you know can can be powerful in, in the lane. Or except, LeBron, except James. in football, He's quite good at that. One. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Well, that's a good answer to the question. So I assume then you're leaning towards the, the left center back. I think so. I think yeah. I think we got enough attackers. That's that doesn't seem to be our issue. Yeah, I think we, the question, the key to that question is that it asks January, right? So the question is, yeah. what do we need this January to finish top four? And I'd probably lean left center half. I still think there's enough goals in the team this season. If you were asking me long term, what the squad needs, mm-hmm. a young mm-hmm. winger would be mm-hmm. a great add. Although Reese Nelson may wind up being that player, so we'll see. Scott, mm-hmm. one for you. Uh, we will leave the exciting qualitative questions aside and put the boring, dry, quantitative questions to you. Um, one for Scott, says Bobby Chakraborty at Bob Lex on Twitter. I know it's a small sample size, but how does Emery's arsenal compare to his time at Sevilla and PSG, XG-wise or any stats? Any way to compare those, Scott, in terms of maybe passing stats or uh, pressure stats or XG stats, indeed, that kind of compare his time to... Um, to PSG and, and Sevilla to what he's done at Arsenal? If yeah, I could just so I, interject here. No, you can't. No. <laughs> back, back in your corner. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so what I've seen is that it's pretty much right in the middle um, between the two. Um, and I think that's pretty expected. Uh, PSG is the, the big fish in the small pond that is Ligue 1. Or Ligue 1. Uh, you know, I'm not going to try to do French. I, you know, Ligue it's right uh, in, Hang on. I, yeah. I've got this. It's Ligue uh. Uh. Okay, go ahead. Uh, uh, so yeah, PSG is obviously the the best team, um, the biggest team in that league, and their stats really um, show that. Um, you know, 
Emery didn't really do a, a huge variation from what uh, Laurent Blanc did before. Um, at Sevilla, they were um, a team that really kind of punched above their weight. Uh, he was a, a good manager, but you know they pretty much did the same thing where they finished about where expected, um, you know, behind the the big three of the La Liga. Um, so at Arsenal, um, it looks like it's going to be about more of the same. Um, Arsenal's stats right now are a little bit confusing. Um, their XG isn't great, but they're scoring goals. Um, I know I've looked at the the new shot placement model that I've done, and that helps to explain some of it. Um, Arsenal are very good at getting goals or shots on target, and they also are doing well at putting them in the corner. So that has really juiced their um, goal scoring numbers. Um, the big thing that I've noticed is that um, on the defensive side, more than the offensive side, is that uh, you know last year under Wenger, um, Arsenal were much more heavily uh, um, an interception-based defense. Um, they still tackled quite a bit. Um, but they're, you know, we're at the top of the league in interceptions, or towards the top of the league in interceptions. But this year under um, Emery, um, Arsenal really dropped off in interceptions, almost uh, three a game less uh, this year. Um, while the tackles have stayed the same, uh, fouls have gone up a little bit more. So that's been the the bigger thing that I've noticed is the kind of a, a switch into a more aggressive style uh, with you know going for tackles and inter- you know fouls over looking to intercept the ball. That's been the the big thing that I've noticed in the the change, and I think that's something that Emery is really trying to do with the team. Is that is that something that we saw? Let's put his PSG side uh, aside for now, so to speak. Is that something that we saw with his Sevilla teams? I mean, is that more consistent with how they played? Yeah, I believe so. I think that they were more of a, a tackle heavy. Um, you know, it's hard to really kind of compare between leagues sometimes because the style of play is different. The, and the way the fouls way the are called, referees, certainly. Yeah. Exactly, the way the referees do things. Um, but I think that's going to be the, the mindset that he tries to bring in um, with his pressing you know, mentality that he's trying to, to implement. It's a lot more of the let's get on the ball quickly, do the pressure uh, more on the player with the ball instead of trying to intercept the pass. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. And I think to your point about beating XG, you know, you do wonder if you'll start to see other teams in the league kind of copying what we're doing and instructing their strikers to shoot accurately into the corners away from where the keepers can save it. I feel like if they catch on to that idea, that could become really popular. Um you know, stylistically. You shit. <laughs> I, sorry, I'm giving away I'm giving away all the secrets, but I feel like that could develop in, into a really popular strategy. Um so okay, Paul, let's come back to you. And, you know, one of the things that I think has been an issue this season is what we're doing with Mesut Ozil. And so Thomas James at EBI Thomas J on Twitter says, Mad idea, colon, could Ozil play as a deep-lying central midfielder in place of Shaka? What do you think? No. Okay, uh, yeah, Scott, I think that's, we've got another... Think that's a bad, oh, you're going to keep I talking. that's okay. a bad idea. Um, so... I've often wondered about it. He certainly. By, by the way, I'll stop you this. just for a second. These are listener questions, so instead of oh, responding yeah, yeah, to them sorry. the way you would mind and saying that's a bad idea, maybe you could be like, "Really <laughs> interesting question, Thomas." Um, I probably would say no. That that's the way to go with that. Yeah, is he a Patreon subscriber? Uh, let's assume yes. <laughs> oh, okay, that's an excellent question. Um, <laughs> I certainly think he has all the skills and abilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I don't think he has the inclination, the wiring, nor is it his his best usage of his superpowers. And I think uh, Ozil is a guy, you you see it with many players, maybe most players, but certainly with Ozil, 
um, when he's not doing what he doesn't like. I mean, you can do it for a game, right? You can send him out against a big team to get a result and have him do a job. Um, but it's not, you know, he's more artist than artisan. And That's well the said, end by the, the day, way. Nice turn of phrase. Oh, thank you very much. Um, at the end of the day, that will out, as Shakespeare would have said. Um, the truth will out. And he's a guy who's got to be doing what switches his brain on, and that's creating, uh, moving to space, uh, thinking the moves ahead. And CM is just uh, too busy a spot for him. And, and at some stage, he's going to get roughed up and knocked around, and he'll do that for a game, but he won't do it for a series of games. So I, I've certainly thought about his ability to drop into midfield or play as that additional midfielder. He certainly has the skills. He can dribble. Uh, he's good on the ball. He can turn, twist. He can obviously pick a pass. Um, he can do it all. But his brain has is now wired, and there's no one wiring it. Yeah, I mean, it's tough, right? Because you, you think he's much harder to dispossess than Shaka. He's much safer with the ball. He certainly has the vision for a pass that Shaka does, and I think he can execute any of those intermediate value and longer passes that Shaka can. I think he's even, you know, a little quicker afoot. I mean, it's not something we identify yeah, with those old, but he is actually quick and powerful yeah. when he wants to be. I think he could do it. I think dropping back and, and taking the ball off the center backs, you know, in games where we could transition quickly, you think, could he maybe start the transition and get it mm -hmm. to our attackers and let them finish the moves and he starts them? But, you know, certainly in terms of other games where you're talking about intermediate value passing, I think you'd just much rather have him on the end of it. And certainly you're paying him 350000 a week to lay on assists and, and create chances and not pass the ball between the lines, you know, into the final third. So And get us the Adidas contract. Get, that's right. Get us the Adidas contract. That, that as well. If, yes. I, could, if I could interject. Uh, I prefer you, really you stay in your hole, but sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Do you really want him in a, another role that's going to ask more of him defensively when we know that that's not really what he mm -hmm. wants to do or likes to do? Well, so um, so I would take issue with that only in saying that if we wanted to be more front-footed, Scott, and if we decided we wanted to press and you decide you're going to drop Ozil into central midfield, you could say, look, we're actually going to put our more energetic players up front where they're going to try to trigger the press. And when Ozil is back there, he's really just collecting it off the back four when we've regained possession, but he's not being tasked with stopping transitions and defending as much. I mean, I think you could make an argument that that position doesn't have to be a defensive position, especially next to Torreira. No? I mean, I, I mean, I think if you're going to do that, you're going to have to do what Juve did with Pirlo. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, either go with uh, the three center backs or, you know, even then, I think they still had the, the three midfielders. So he had uh, Vidal and Pogba next to him, giving him cover. Um, and both of those guys at that time could, you know, cover a ton of midfield by themselves and basically gave Pirlo no responsibility. Okay, well, let's just say that my answer is probably the right one, but we'll move on. Um, you can cut the tension with a knife. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Scott, um, how has our average pass distance changed these last five seasons? Especially, how has it changed post Arsene Wenger? That from Mark Blondahl at Mark Blondahl on Twitter. Blondahl. Well, All right, so well, I wish well I had done. the full five seasons. Hey, but I've just, got, I've got, again, I've got I got to stop. Seasons. I got to stop and, and talk to Paul again. Paul. When we're making fun of the name of the French League, I think fine. The name of the listeners, again, not fine. We'll workshop this after, but just something to think about. Uh, sorry, Scott. Go ahead. 
Um, I wish I had the full five seasons, um, but right now I've got uh, the full four seasons, so um, we can kind of go back from there. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure if this is going to be surprising or not, but um, this season, Arsenal's average pass length is about um, an extra meter um, longer than it has been under Wenger. How much uh, is that in time. normal measurements? Uh, about three feet. Okay, cool. Thank you. Uh, for the Imperial people out there. Um <laughs> Uh, so yeah, under Wenger, it was right about uh, 16 and a half. Uh, under uh, Emery, it's been about 17 and a half. Um, it, you know, the actual forward square versus backward, that hasn't really changed much. We're still about 50% forward, 16% square, uh, 27% backwards. Um, the big change has actually been in the number of short and medium passes. The long passes have stayed roughly stable at about um, 11%. Um, but the the medium passes have gone up, um, you know, from about thirty to thirty three, with the short passes going from fifty three to fifty. Um, so that's been the the big difference. So it's a less of the real short, probably the the triangles, you know, around the box. Um, it's a little bit more of the the medium passes where I think Arsenal are trying to not do the U shape around the box and a little bit further um, back, you know, building up. Do you think that's also related to uh, the fact that Shaq is just on the ball so much, and those are the passes he plays? It definitely could be. Um, I think our, our possession numbers have gone down a bit um, from what they were uh, last year. You know, last year it looks like the Arsenal were uh, possession numbers uh, 54% last year. That's this year. 54% um, this year and uh, 58% last year. Yeah. So our possession's gone down, um, you know, a, a fraction. Um, so I think that a lot of it is, I think, the short passing around the box is what Arsenal really racked up some of those um, numbers. Okay. Well, that that's one to keep an eye on, certainly. I, I think more intermediate, medium-distance passes, fewer short passes may be indicative of a more direct style of play, which is certainly welcome. Uh, let's go back to you, Paul, reluctantly. Mm. Would you offer Welbeck a contract extension if he agreed to accept the same wages he's currently on? Uh, that is really from two people, MT at Mihirt25 and John Redman at JR Shot Who. Ah, lads. Um, so, again, another intriguingly balanced question. You see, we don't have qu- uh, listeners who ask easy questions. They ask the finely balanced ones. If if the ob- answer was obvious, they'd already have answered it. Um, so he's about to be 28 <laughs> You see what I mean? Until he's 29. <laughs> Classic Arsenal territory. He's literally just about to be 28. Um, so I love Danny. I predicted at the start of this season that, and it, it doesn't take much to predict, that Danny Welbeck will prove himself. But Emery at the end of this season will think, gosh, he's a really, really useful player. So I think it'll be very interesting. And I think it's really a combo question because we have a lot of players in the 27, 28 to 30, 31 range. And so I think it depends on what we do with a number of them. Uh, In general, I would want Danny Welbeck to be part of my squad going forward. Uh, And we all know the reasons why. And if we don't, we're stupid. Um, And he's beginning to show it, um, I guess, he kind of stood out in the Fulham game and in other games before that. He's just bloody, bloody useful. And I think maybe we underappreciated him last year when he came back from a long, long injury, which was basically a year out. Because uh, it took him longer than it had before when he's come back for injuries for us and, and for United to hit Danny Welbeck form. 
And I think he looked a bit ordinary there for a while. But towards the end of the season, he kicked in. And this season, he's start, starting to be the Danny Welbeck that we all know and love. So, I mean, at the end of the day, I don't know what his real money is. But I would love them to strike a deal. But we can't have too many 28, 29, 30, 31. Monreal will be, what, 33, 34. Um, and so you've got to watch the age profile. So it depends on who else is re-upping. But I love me some Danny Welbeck. And uh, as a squad player, he's feckin' great. I don't know if that answers the question. No, it does. I mean, it's tough, right? Because it's very hard to get a prime premier, a, a prime age, Premier League experienced striker, as versatile as Danny, who you can have on an affordable wage. I mean, strikers mm-hmm. tend to be more expensive. He's on a very reasonable wage. If we get rid of him, we certainly would need another striker, and they don't come cheap even at the lower tier. I mean, we saw what we paid for Lucas Perez, regardless of what you think of the player. So, you know, it, it certainly seems to me that if you can avoid having to spend a transfer fee on having mm-hmm. a, a, a third-choice striker, and you can have one with experience and energy and versatility who is on a reasonable wage while you're trying to max out what's left of Aubameyang and, you know, and, and Lacazette, I don't see the downside to that. It just lets you put off having to rebuild your front line to some extent, which I'm totally for. Scott, I'll let you get a word in on that just really quickly. I mean, do you, do you see it that way as well? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on how much Danny Wilbeck wants to stay and if he's willing to, to give the discount to stay. Um, because I think there will be plenty of suitors if he wants to um, get more so? game time. It's down the table, though, right? So, I mean, do you think... Yeah, he definitely would. I mean, I think he could probably find a, a spot in the, you know, the upper half of the table. He's not going to go down to someone... An Everton the, or somebody. Yeah, you know, Everton, Wofford, um, you know, uh, uh, Wolves. You know, they could, you know, use a guy like Danny Welbeck. Um, so, I think there's going to be, you know, suitors for him. Um, I think he could also, you know be an option for even uh, if he doesn't necessarily want to stay with Arsenal, if he wants to go back um, to a, another team, he could be a, a second or third choice guy on, you know, a team like Liverpool. I think he would really fit in well there. Um, basically maybe replace like a, a Daniel Sturridge, you know, be as the, the second option off the bench um, for them if he wants. So I, I think he's going to have options. Um, depends on what he wants to do. Um, I don't think that he's going to command a, a huge price, um, but I would definitely welcome him back. I think that he adds a lot of value um, to the team. Yeah, I, I, I think his energy is really useful and for all the reasons that are stated. I think we've handled that question. So uh, let's move on, Scott. And I think the question on everybody's lips right now, obviously, is regression or the word on everybody's lips. You're hearing a lot of that um, coming from a lot of the stats community in terms of, oh, Arsenal's underlying numbers suggest regression. I think there are plenty of reasons to believe that won't happen, and the main one really just being that we're still developing under a new manager, so the performances may improve, which will change the underlying numbers. But given that, and knowing that our underlying numbers have not been fantastic, uh, Edison Martinez at eBagel77 asks, Scott, how does your model rate chances of a top-four finish given three-quarters of Project 24 has been tucked away? Has... Have the underlying numbers changed it at all, or given the points we picked up? I mean, where, where do we stand in your top four model? Um, so right now we're sitting at about 45%, and I was very excited to see this question because, you know, my, my trademark, Project 24, I'm very excited to have, you know, coined Have that it referenced, and, yeah. You know, I, and uh, I have to just shameless. say, well, since he's not coming on until later in the podcast, I think it's shameful the way Clive has, has sort of co-opted it, Scott. I'm really proud of you for coming up with that one. Yep. Um, so yeah. So Arsenal is sitting about forty-five percent currently. 
um, oh, which sure. is up from about 35% from when Project 24 that I created started. Wait, it's up from what? Um, from 35%? About 35%. Um, Arsenal, yeah, it was 35.1 when we started, so Arsenal have added about 10% to their top four chances. To whose detriment? Um, who, are the, who are the clubs that have come back to us? Um, so the biggest ones are going to be, uh, you know, Manchester United has dropped significantly, um, and Tottenham has dropped um, quite a bit as well. Um, I know when we started, um, Tottenham were sitting at about 80%, and right now they're in the about 70% range. So um, they've taken points from uh, Manchester United and Tottenham. Um, because Chelsea um, keeps winning, I wish we could have taken you know more of their chances, but you know they're, they're looking good still ahead of us. Um, the biggest thing right now is... Um, that I was a little bit surprised at and a little bit disappointed because I know one of the things when I wrote about the Project 24 um, to create it was that... Uh, okay, okay. Uh, you're overdoing it now. Look, Clive, Clive came up with it. I was going to go with the joke, but since you just keep boasting, it was Clive's. Let's move on. <laughs> um, I, I was really hoping if they were able to, to reel off you know, six, seven wins in a row that the, the underlying numbers would show that the team has gotten better and that the team ratings that feeds into my projections would actually show that their numbers would even be getting better than what I was expecting from the beginning. But that actually hasn't been the case. Um, my rankings of them has actually stayed about the same. Um, and a lot of it is because the underlying numbers aren't good. Um, the one thing on the regression um, that I do want to point out is that while regression to the means you're going to go towards your average, it doesn't necessarily imply that Arsenal are going to have a bad run of form. It just may, means that they're going to switch back to their underlying numbers, which would be more about the 1.75 um, points per game instead of you know the, the two and a half or whatever that they've been on this season. So it doesn't necessarily imply that Arsenal are going to go into a tailspin. Um, it just means that you know getting wins like this um, is not going to necessarily That we're not going to win like, six in a row in the league and nine in a row overall, which, oh, by the way, no one expects us to do. We're not going to keep winning every single game we play. Right? Yep, Am I right, right about that? Yeah, okay. Exactly. I, I <laughs> would definitely sure. not expect. Sorry, I was waiting for you to, you know, thought that <laughs> was a it. very well said point. <laughs> um, to bring in the negativity, we're yep. not going to win every game. Classic. Classic, Elliot. I'll, I'll, I'll make you a deal, Paul. If we win every single game, I will mm -hmm. um, do absolutely nothing different than I would have done any. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, how about that? That's that's really where I'm going with that. Um, all right. Well, look, I, I think that is that's you know a good way to look at it. The fact of the matter is, given that your model is driven mostly by the underlying numbers and, and the points picked up, obviously, but the underlying numbers influence it. I would say that a 10 percent improvement on this run is pretty good. I mean, are you satisfied with that, or do you think that's less than we needed it to be? I mean, given the option between playing well and not picking up points and playing mediocre and picking up points, the obvious answer is that I would rather have the points in the bag. Um, you can always work on getting your improvement um, on the pitch, you know, you know, coming along. You know, I'm hoping that, you know, the Fulham game actually gave me some some positives. You know, while the numbers weren't great, um, I think a lot of that was driven by score effects. Um, I thought Arsenal really clicked better um, in the attack. I thought that they were flowing a lot better. There was more balance in the team. Um, I think Emery's starting to get an idea of how he can put this team together to to maximize the talent. It's still you know not great with the way it's built, but I think he's starting to get an idea. Um, so I think that going through a, a rough patch of form but still picking up points is amazing. Um, Arsenal right now are projected about 70 points, which is pretty good. Um, so I, I, I'm happy with how they're they're doing. Um, I'd like to see the the numbers improve, though, going forward. Okay. 
uh, Paul, let's let's put all that together and now put you into the uh, crystal ball and and mm-hmm. see what you can predict. Uh, mm-hmm. Torreira, maybe mm-hmm. maybe Arsenal's midfielder. I have no way of knowing. At Arsenal View underscore on Twitter uh, asks in the top six league, how many points will we get playing the other five home and away? Uh, could be the make or break difference this season. So. Give me your prediction. What do you expect? And if you want to go through it game by game just to make it easier for yourself, obviously we've already played City at home and Chelsea away and have, as you may know, zero points from that. Sorry to reinterject the negativity. But what do you see happening in the remainder of our top six league games this season? So there would be eight more games. Um, I mean, yes, so that's right. we could ask Scott. He's the stats guy. Scott, is that correct? If we played two of ten games, does that leave eight games left? Yes, okay. that checks out. Thank you. Good. Um, and I think historically for a while now, even when we've been doing better in the league, we've tended to underperform in the top six table. Um, and it doesn't feel that great, uh, this season either. So, uh, it's a bit of a crapshoot. I think we can, if I look at Liverpool, they tend to scare the other big teams, but I think we can do okay against them. So I guess our first meeting with them, uh, I could see us getting a draw at home and uh, later on in the season. It's going to be a tough one. But if we strengthen and we've got our shit together, uh, I could see a draw there. And I think maybe draws are kind of par for the course for us this season. And I think that's okay. I think if if we do what we're doing at the moment and clean up in the bottom of the league... Um, we'll need a result against really the teams we need to give a shit about are Spurs and United. And, and, then, just, and then just match Spurs and United results against Chelsea, City, and Liverpool. <laughs> yeah, well, more and, or less. And clean up against the little guys. Right. But if we can hold our own against United and Spurs. So, uh, I mean, doing the maths of how many points we get, I don't know. But I think we can get re- definitely get results. Uh, we may not get a win at United. By then, they'll have sorted themselves out and got a proper manager who's not pissing everybody off. But if we could get a draw there, a win at home, if we could beat Spurs at home and a draw there, uh, I think we'd be in pretty good shape for the league. Um, I think, well, we played Chelsea away, so we could get a draw against them at home. Um, And City, we're going to play away. That's going to be tough, I suspect. Um, Liverpool, I mean, we're hitting a reasonable run of form and they're not brilliant at the moment. They're still good. Very, very good. Uh, but they're not really hitting it out of the park. So, you know, maybe we come off 10 on 10 games unbeaten in the Premier League. We have two more to go before we face them, I think. Crystal Palace and somebody. Leicester. Leicester this Leicester. weekend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, maybe, maybe we go in there, not so much having cracked the code, but feeling good and playing at home. Maybe we can get this win this time. So I don't know what that all adds up to. I I think we can do okay against the top six. I think we'll still be slightly subpar at the end of the season, but if we do well enough, especially against Spurs and United, I'll take that. And then we look to clean up against the little guys. Yeah, and good news, listeners. If you followed that, you are now officially a Mensa member, so congratulations on that. Um, Yeah, I don't know what any of that adds up to, but I like that answer, Paul. I think it was really uh, concise. I would say, 
Oh, uh, I can't it, be wrong. No, you certainly can't be wrong. There's no way to parse that into an answer that could be evaluated <laughs> in terms of its accuracy. Um, I will say that we will pick up. So there's, there's what? There's eight more games. I think we will pick up 14 points from those eight games. Okay. Uh, and anybody anybody want to write that down? Somebody write that down. 14 points from those eight games. Scott? Uh, I, I'll, I'll say nine. I, my, my model says Ooh. that we expect eight and a half. That's terrible. Terrible. I, I say 11, and I christened it Project Not Too Bad. Okay. I'm going to say, um, not project. What's another word for project? Um, uh, anybody Anybody got the thesaurus open? Project. How about um, uh, assignment 14? Assignment 14. It's got a ring to it. Let's see how we do on assignment 14 this season. Okay, everybody write that down. Nobody's, nobody's going to fight you for it. No. Another great idea by me. <laughs> Scott, Scott, I can't <laughs> wait to read your assignment point. 14 article. Okay, Scott, question for you. How does our attack compare to last season's attack after the OBA transfer? Possession percentage, XG per game, XG per chance. What would Arson do at OAWGunner on Twitter has put that question forward to you? All right. So the the biggest things that really kind of stick out for me, um, the possession numbers, you know, down a little bit. Um, you know, like we already kind of talked a little bit about what's what's changed a bit. The biggest mm-hmm. ones are the the xG per shot um, has gone down quite a bit. Uh, you know, Arsenal under Arsene Wenger were you know known for walking it into the net, you know, shooting long shots. Um, while that's come back into fashion under Emery, um, Arsenal are about 0.11 per xG shot. Um, when they were before about 0.16, so that's down um, a pretty good portion there. So I think that's about you know 25% down in the the one shot. Um, the number I think, of I think you third... want to say uh, 250 basis points. Uh, sorry, no 20. Don't Moving on. <laughs> um, the the biggest um, the other change that I've noticed is actually where the possession um, takes place. Um, under Wenger, um, almost all of Arsenal's well, you know, a good chunk of Arsenal's possession was in the final third. Um, now it's actually switched further back under Emery. So um, 26% of the ball, um, 26% of the time that Arsenal have the ball has been in the defensive third compared to 20% last year. Um, you know, in the middle that's third, it's about the same. Hmm. And, yeah, and that's 50, that's 50. the playing out from the back, I guess, right? I, I do think that that is, yeah, it's being more patient in the back where Arson really wanted to um, focus on the verticality with the ball. You, you move to the front um, as fast as you can. Um, and there, then you build it through and try to cut through. Where under um, Emery, you know, just 28% of the possession has been in the final third, where it was um, over 35% um, under Wenger. Um, the big thing that hasn't changed has actually been the the number of touches in the box. So um, that one, it's 25 per match this year, um, where it was 24 last year. So that's essentially um, a wash um, in the change there. Um, so I think that it's. Still getting the ball into the box the same amount, but maybe a little less patient probing. You know, that dreaded U-shape around the box. Um, this year, it's a little bit more direct, you know, build up slower. But once you've built up and broken down the defense, it's go all out and attack, which is kind of a um, a nice change to see. A little bit of a, a change. And maybe, maybe it's reading into it too much, but maybe that is what happens when you play out from the back a little more elaborately, is that you create more spaces when you do get it forward because exactly. they're trying yeah, to recover I, their shape. Exactly. I, you, invi- you invite people to come something controversial? Uh, before, uh, before you do, just real quick, Scott, I want to get one more stat from you and then Paul come in with your controversial thing. So the big one, though, is obviously XG per game. Um, what's our, our XG and XG difference per game? 
versus um, last season? It's, it's it's gone down. Um, part of it is the the number of shots has gone down, um, and we're taking uh, not as good shots. So last year, I think it was about one point eight. This year, we're at one point five. Um, so it's it's gone down. Um, the scoring has gone up, but again, we've already touched on that. We're we're maybe in line for some regression. Hopefully not. Hopefully the the numbers can go up to meet what we're doing right now, and yep. we won't have any regression. Okay, uh, Paul. Now your controversial uh, okay. uh, inclusion. You, uh, I think part of the reason are a lot of our touches and possession is deep. Um, and some of the other stats to do with the final third is we don't press. We're not a pressing team anymore. We're much less of a pressing team than we were with Wenger in the front half, in the front, uh, the the top area of the pitch, in the final third. We literally do not press. We don't even try. We're middle table from what I can see. And that means you're middle table with a bunch of teams that don't press. We did in the first two games against City and Chelsea. So if you were to subtract those pressing numbers from our numbers, we press even less statistically. And we did in the Carabao Cup game. Um, But we don't actually press in the final third. We did a bit against Fulham, given the lineup we had. But even then, it wasn't a massively coordinated thing. I would bet, because I went back and had a look at a few of the games again, we're not even trying to press uh, in with our front lineup, barely individually, and certainly not as a team. Which is that a surprise. I mean, right? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you say weird. that surprises you based on what you expected? Yeah. Now, to be fair... The pressing we do, we do across the back and through Torreira and Chak a bit in front of the centre-backs. Uh, we kind of press up into midfield, but we do not... What I expected to see, and part of the rationale of having Ramsey there was, uh, I can see Ramsey as a 10 if you've you got this four-man, five-man pressing unit, pressing them into the final third. We don't do it. And we did it against the two bigger teams, not against the smaller teams. And we've had a run of smaller teams, and we don't press. Yeah. Which, maybe it's a thing we're leaving to the second half of the season until we get the or, other things nailed down. Or maybe yeah. it's a, a tactic we're planning to use against the bigger teams, that we see... Yeah you know, a press as a more effective way. Because look, if teams want to play out from their bat in defensive third, then pressure can be a high risk, but also a very high reward strategy. If you're playing smaller clubs that are going to be direct and just bypass your press by going long, um, you know, you're inviting open space for weaker teams to attack into. You know, I think if you're playing a, you know, I'm trying to think of a team that does a Newcastle at the Emirates and you don't think they can hurt you much when you're in your defensive shape, when you're in your, your shell, then why press? Why not just mm. you know win the ball back when you can and then go after them? If you press Newcastle, you create the kind of space where an otherwise blunt attack could hurt you. So I can see the, the argument for not doing it against smaller teams um, and doing it against the bigger teams where they're going to be a little more elaborate and maybe give the ball away. We saw it. City gave the ball away a decent amount, and we had chances as a result of it. Um, the, well, the question is is whether we would do it against the next big team. We basically did it for the first two games and then didn't do it. So I'm intrigued we're find to out. see. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Liverpool is going to be an interesting game yep. in that respect um, in, yep. in terms of, you know, who who wants to be the pressing team because Liverpool are actually pressing less than they mm-hmm. used to. So it'll be interesting. Um, and, and who knows? You know, maybe these teams are waking up to the fact that the risks of pressing against smaller teams is too high because you look at Liverpool and they've gotten better defensively. Their underlying defensive numbers, I'm going to put on my Scott hat here, their underlying defensive numbers have gotten a lot better 
as they've pressed less. And they used to just mm -hmm. be more open because they were so intense in their pressure. Um, and they're suppressing shots and chances now more as they press less. So let, let's do a quick question here. This one comes from Naranjan Kulkarni. Hopefully said that right. At Nizus00004, which is also his, his uh, password on Twitter. Um, he asks, if Czech will be fit next week, who should start in goal? Him or Leno? Or Martinez, if you like him. Uh, so, Paul, just quickly. Oh, that's easy. Yeah. I know. He's done nothing wrong. Uh, he suits our style. Uh, he's clearly so much more fluid on the ball, which is good for those around him. I'm a big Czech fan. I think he's done great. Fair cojones to him for stepping up and learning a new way of playing. He's been okay with the ball at his feet. But he makes the people around him a bit nervous. And he makes the crowd nervous. And it's Leno time for now. It's his to lose for the time being. Um, so there's no question in mind, in my mind, that uh, it, it should be Leno. Be Leno. Okay. Scott, stylistically you... uh, yeah. and just out of justice, a sense of justice. Well, I think that's moment. a tough one, right? Because you know, yeah. there's there's a saying, at least in American sports. I don't know if it's the case as much in football that you don't lose yeah. your job from injury. You know that if yeah. if you're hurt. You should get your job back when you come back, assuming you were playing well. And I think Czech was playing well enough to keep the the first place or first choice goalkeeper shirt. But through injury, Leno's come in and done fine. I don't think he's been stunning, but he's certainly been better at playing out from the back. I mean, Scott, let me ask you the question two ways. One, who do you think will start in goal when Czech is fit? And who do you think should be starting in goal? Yeah, I think the Czech might be the person who comes in. Um I think that he's been impressive. He hasn't done anything to lose his job, and Leno hasn't been amazing. I think he's actually played really well. Um, both of them have been really good at the shot stopping because Arsenal's defense has really given up way too many shots for for my liking. Um, looking at the stats, I think that, that Leno's passing does stand out as better. Um, on a passing value added, uh, check was a, a negative. He was um, point, negative 0 0.05 uh, per 50 pass attempts, uh, while Leno has been a positive 0 0.01. So it's a, a pretty good uh, margin in there. Uh, Leno's passing percentage overall is about 78% to 72%. Um, you know, so I think that he does add something in that regard. He just seems more comfortable on the ball. Um, he adds that confidence that you know, maybe Czech doesn't have. Um, but I think that Czech has done really well with his shot stopping. Um, you know, he is a, a proven Premier League uh, keeper, if you want to go that route, and has played here for a long time and knows how to deal with some of the, you know, the special sauce that is in the Premier League, you know, the crosses, dealing with the, the big burly strikers and the physicality. So uh, I, I would think that I would like to stick with Leno. I think Czech comes back and gets his spot, and it's his to, to lose still. It's interesting. I mean, I, I think there are a lot of people jumping on the idea that Leno has improved our play out from the back. And while I agree with it, I think some of that is seeing what we want to see. I don't know that we've played a level of competition where you can evaluate it that much. And I also don't know that it has been so much better that it's just so obvious to anybody, you, you know, you, you have to start Leno. Now, look, Czech has not been good at playing out from the back and Leno is better. And the one thing that we've harped on on this podcast is that Leno seems to be more judicious in when he does it. He's willing to go long when that's what's called for, when the short game is not on, and he's willing to play out from the back intelligently when it's on. I I wonder if Czech felt more pressure to show he could do it and do it every time, but we will see. I, I certainly think 
that Emery tipped his hand with how he stuck with Czech, that he wants Czech to be his goalkeeper. So I think there's a chance he comes back and gets the job back, although I agree it probably should be Leno's. If for no other reason than he is the future of the position, it certainly isn't Czech long-term. Um, so, Scott, I'll stay with you for a stats question. Kind of curious about this, given that Mesut Ozil has struggled. Christian Lawfer at CLoff31 on Twitter asks, do you calculate expected assists? And if so, or conversely, if you use a different stat, who is our main chance creator this season, and what might that tell us about Emery's system and style of play? Ah, uh, uh, yes. So the, there is an answer to that question, and yes, I do um, have an expected assist. I actually have a, a couple different ones that I do um, because apparently I can't do more than or just you know stick with one thing. I have one that's based on shot location, um, so that's basically you know xG, and then I have one that I built based on pass location. So it's looking at uh, where the actual pass was done. So you know if a player makes a little you know, short little pass and a player goes and dribbles past a player and gets himself in on goal. Um, you know, that really wasn't the person that was making the assist, you know, that did that. It was the person who was taking the shot that created a lot of the value there. The other one that I like to look at is the the offensive value added. So um, passing value added goes in there quite a bit. Um, so that is, you know, a, a long answer to a short question of, yes, I do have an XA model. Um, the people that do the best for which, which our- wasn't really the question, but okay, who who are the creators? <laughs> Let's dive into the meat of the question. <laughs> sure, let me pull this one up here. So switching tabs. Um, the main creators um, for Arsenal this season um, are going to be uh, looking at the wrong season. <laughs> you know your your database was much faster on the what's uh, ten minus two. You got that one much yeah, quicker. I, I know. I'm, I'm usually better at that. The, pro- the processing power for that was there. Yeah. All right. So the person who leads Arsenal uh, in key passes so far this season is uh, Alexander uh, Lacazette. Wow. Um, you know, looking at the, the expected assists um, right now, uh, Alex Wobi um, is hmm. in the shot location um, based on pass location. Uh, it's Aaron Ramsey. Um, which is a bit surprising there. Um, the best person at you know getting the passes into the box um, right now is Mesut Ozil. Um, he has 21 um, completed passes into the box, and he's also doing it at the the highest percentage. Um, so that's that's kind of interesting. Interesting. So, so it's it's been like our goal scoring. It seems to be really um, spread throughout the team. And and what does that? Um, I mean, what does it tell you about Emery's style of play, if anything? I mean, if you had to read into it, I you know. I think the simple fact that Mesut Ozil isn't up there more certainly indicates the struggle we've had integrating him into the attack and finding a role for him. But do, do you read anything into the, the spread of those numbers? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that part of it is because Ozil just hasn't really been able to get an influence in the game or in, in any of the games with his role there on the right-hand side. Um, so to me, I think that's the biggest thing that, that sticks out. Um, normally, he would be the, the leader. He's the one that the, the offense all flows through. Um, and, you know, it's, it's nice to see that Arsenal are able to kind of uh, compensate for, um, you know, him not being able to do that. So it's a, I, I really want to see him get into the, into the match more. Yeah, certainly if he gets into his stride, you talk about ways that the underlying numbers could improve. Mesut Ozil becoming more of his dominant chance-creating self would be a big step in the right direction there. Uh, Paul, two quick questions for you. One from KK at Red Square on Twitter, and I, I thought this was actually kind of an interesting one, but one we don't have to spend a lot of time on. If you had a chance at a straight swap right now between Torreira and Nabi Keita, would you do it? 
That was yeah, I saw that one. That one's really tough. Um, on paper, putting my emotional side away, I mean, I think Keita is just potentially a worldie, and we haven't seen the best of him at Liverpool yet. He's still only settling in. Uh, he may have a bit of a hamstring niggle at the moment. He's been used sparingly at Liverpool, so I don't know that I judge him by Liverpool yet. I judge him by what I the 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 little bit I knew about him from RB Leipzig and his reputation and what I understood about reading about him. I mean, he's just he can impact a team all over the pitch, defensively, center of the center of mid, and uh, going into the final third. So it will be hard to turn him down. On the other hand, I've I've grown accustomed to Torreira, and he may be what a, he may fix what ails us, and he may be doing the most important job for us. And I think Cater could help greatly in that, but he's not really a guy who sits. No, it's, and, it's interesting, right? I mean, the funny yeah. thing is Liverpool are using him almost like a ten, and so yeah. watching him at Liverpool has actually. I, anyone who knows me knows that I was devastated that Liverpool got him and wanted him badly and still think he can be one of the best players in the world at that position. But given the money we've tied up in uh, uh, Mesut Ozil, you know, we'll see what happens with Aaron Ramsey. Given that we're still committed to Granite Shaka for a while, you wonder if in our system Keita would fill the role that we need in the way that Torreira really seems a natural fit for it. Yeah, and I think he'd play... To me, I'd play him as the Chaka instead of the Terreri. Which more, would mean you'd still need a Terreira. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hooray! Everybody's happy. But he's more the... he's a, He can he basically plays a bit, bit of the 6, 8, and 10, but mostly an 8. So for for me, he's that he's that other midfielder uh, with Terreira. Uh, that would be a hell of a combination. So, um, yeah. I, I think he's more a direct equivalent. I don't think he's the same as Kante. But I think he brings a lot of the Angola Kante uh, position on the pitch. Yeah. Does a lot of what he does, uh, but is more attacking, and uh, and he can sit. But it's a it's an abuse of his of his talents. So on I paper, I I take take Keita, but man, I've I've grown to love what Torreira brings. It's a classic example of the Arsenal problem, right? The better player is probably Keita, is my suspicion, but the player we probably need, given our squad, is Torreira. And so there's nothing wrong with taking the guy you need over the better player. Um, I will say that I think what we've settled on, and I don't want to be controversial, is that having Keita and Torreira would be good. And that we should yeah. probably swap Shaka for Torreira with Liverpool. Mm. I mean, for for mm. for Keita at Liverpool. Yeah. I mean, Scott, you, you agree? Uh, uh, Shaka for Keita, straight swap with Liverpool. You take it. Yeah, I would. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's finish with a fun one, uh, negative one. And then when I say finish, by the way, Tim is going to come on. He's going to give us uh, an answer to one question. That's all he has time for right now. But it, it should be a good one. And then Clive's going to come on and answer a few more of your questions. So we got a lot more coming up. Uh, so stay with us. Don't go anywhere. But. Before that happens, we'll finish on a down note. Scott, considering mm. how we did okay against Fulham without Aubameyang, Rambo, Ozil, you could say we've got decent depth up front, less so in other areas of the pitch. James Morgan at Mullet Rider wants to know which two injuries would completely fuck us. Uh, that's a good one. Um, man, probably to one of our center backs because, well, one, our center backs aren't good and we don't have very many of them. So um, I'd say a, a long-term injury to uh, Socrates at this point. And uh, let's see, then the other one, 
the second injury that would really kind of to kill us, maybe to someone in the midfield, maybe a, eh, that's a that's a tough one. Um, I think it's yeah, I got to be in the defense. So maybe Monreal if he was out for a long term, or a, you know Bellerin if they were out long term, um, that would be real tough to, can, to replace. Can you pick two, uh, please? <laughs> uh, Bellerin and Socrates. Okay, Paul. Uh, yeah, I, I'm going to use both my injuries to focus by. Uh, breaking Torreira's left leg and then Torreira's right leg. That don't, would focus. Don't you put that in the world, you son of a bitch. This is Anything Arsenal. Else. We have a bad track record. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so Torreira alone would be enough, is your is your idea? Both legs. I'm going to use both my inj- my injuries on both his legs. No, I think, uh, I think we can survive anywhere else, but uh, probably the second most painful. Well, let's assume the season... Uh, that we start to develop into the team we can be rather than the team we are. Possibly uh, if Leno becomes what we need him to become. Uh, I, I'd go with Socrates or Leno, possibly what? Leno. That's silly. Um, no, the, the right answer is Torreira and Socrates. No, no. If we're to be the team we need to be, we need to really be able to play out from the back. Yes, but you're overthinking this. It's which two injuries would completely fuck us. A Leno injury wouldn't completely fuck us. Torreira and Socrates means we're playing, you know, second... Second Koscielny and Mustafi in a month or so's time, and we got holding if there. Koscielny no, can come no. back from an Achilles rupture in his 30s. I mean, we don't totally know. And as you know, Mustafi should be fired out of a cannon into the sun. Actually, a Mustafi injury might be the best thing for us. But, you know, let's put that to one side. Nobody's going to like that. Um, all right, how about this? Two injuries that would completely fuck us. Let's, so how about this, guys? What if it's these two injuries? Aubameyang and Lacazette. Oh, Danny Welbeck is ready to step up and no, but you see what I mean, the... right? If if those two both got injured long term, I think we'd have to agree we're fucked. That's true. I think anytime you lose a, a big striker like that, you're in big trouble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, the good news is we've figured out that if you eliminate our best players from our squad, we might not still be good. So I'm glad we clarified that. Scott's on Twitter at oh underscore that underscore crab. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. Paul's on Twitter at pause in my pants. Thanks, pause. I'm still pissed off. What? Which specifically thing? Which which point specifically? That stuff you said when I said the thing about Leno. Uh, you want you want to dig into it one last time? No. I mean, look, I'm not saying losing Leno wouldn't be bad. I'm saying it wouldn't completely fuck us. I mean, are you really going to say that having to go with Czech derails the season? It doesn't derail the season, but it might derail top four. Not because I I don't think he's doing well for us, but if we're going to play to a level. And if playing out from the back is key, and the most important play, player for playing out from the back is Leno, and we all agree that Czech isn't good at it, then that fucks our season. I'm going to do something here for the sake of the. I'm going to do something here for the sake of the podcast, Paul. I yeah. totally agree with you. Good point. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we're going to take a break. <laughs> when we come back, Tim's going to talk to you about Brazilians. And you'll see uh, what I mean by that. And then Clive will be here to answer a bunch more of your questions uh, without all this banter and bullshit. It'll just be good, solid, dense football information. I don't mean dense as in like dummy. I mean dense as in like there'll be lots of good information for you to dig into. Anyway, this has mostly been fantastic. Uh, We'll take a break. We'll come back with Tim and Clive after this. Okay, it's time for Tim to do his thing. Now, Tim could only be here for one question, so he recorded an answer to that one, and it came from Ben at I Got Kabata on Twitter. I believe that's right. Uh, he asked him, 
Arsenal's recruiting of Brazilian players and into the Brazilian league always seems a bit uh, lacking. Any idea why that is? And if they were to recruit there, are there any players that would fit well over the next few years? So Tim is going to answer that. Tim's on Twitter, at Stoberto. We'll let Tim do his thing, and when he's done, we'll pop back in with Clive and answer more of your questions. On the question of why Arsenal aren't across um, the Brazil out as a talent pool, uh, the answer to that, though, there's a few answers to that, all of them fairly simple. Um, the first answer is that no Premier League club is across the Brazil out as um, a talent pool, really. There are quite a few Brazilians in the Premier League, but very few of them come directly from Brazil. Um, and this is, first of all, just for logistic reasons. It's very, very difficult to get um, work permits and things like that done. That's why clubs like Real Madrid, Barcelona and clubs in general in Spain and Portugal have the kind of reserve on um, Brazilian talent. You look at Brazil, um, they played against Argentina on Tuesday night. Their midfield three was Artur, Casemiro and Coutinho who play for Real Madrid and Barcelona, um, which, which tells you a lot about what you need to know. Um, because and it's purely just for work permit reasons it's far easier to get a work permit and because the culture um, in Spain and Portugal is slightly closer to Brazil I think this is something people kind of understandably underestimate moving from Brazil to England is a huge huge cultural um, a huge cultural shock the the cultures of the countries are completely different um, imagine, if you will, moving from England maybe to Japan or China. Um, you know, nothing wrong with those countries or living in them. It's just it's an enormous culture shift. And, and that's that's a big issue um, in moving players directly from Brazil to England. And that's why most of the Brazilian players in the Premier League have come from other European clubs. So Firmino came from Hoffenheim, Alisson from Roma, Fabinho from Monaco, Fregi has come from Shakhtar Donetsk, and Shakhtar Donetsk have made a fantastic business model out of using the Brazil Aral as a bit of a talent pool um, and readying players for bigger European clubs. Um, so there's, there's that, and also because it's a huge risk, which is why I'm loath to kind of, I don't know, recommend players who I think might be good and might fit in at Arsenal or, or indeed any Premier League club because it's not just a cultural adaptation, it's a footballing adaptation as well that's that's quite difficult. It's very, very different, the approach to the game, the approach to training. It's a massive risk, basically. Um, and the reason the, the kind of the talent pool seems so good in Brazil... So, like, the Brazil Arau is is not a particularly... It's not a hotbed of talent. It's just that Brazil is a country of 200 million people and football is the national sport. So it really is needles in haystacks. It's just that there are a lot lot of people that play football there. Um, So there's nothing in particular that they do to develop talent that makes them like a hotbed. It's it's purely almost an accident of population, which which is why... um, yeah, which which is why so so few clubs go to it. You might remember about ten years ago, Arsenal tapped into the South American market a little bit, and they bought over players like Samuel Galindo, Pedro Botelho, uh, Wellington Silva, uh, at great expense, at great resource, um, and every single one of them failed because they all had to go out on loan, and that that is just not the way. Um, to induct a South American player to send them out on loan to other countries, it just doesn't work. Um, Man City have just tried to do it with a player called Marlos Moreno from Colombia, who's brilliant. 
but he's just been farmed out on loan everywhere and, and that will essentially ruin his career. Um, so, but yeah, so basically other bigger European clubs have, have the kind of, um, on, on the talent that is obviously going to make it, like Neymar, uh, for example, the, the big Spanish clubs um, are across that. There are exceptions, of course. You know, Tottenham bought Paulinho direct from Brazil. That didn't really work, but he'd already played in Europe. Um, the bit, the big, and then um, Chelsea bought Oscar from Internacional. That's because Chelsea had um, a very friendly agent um, who's very active in South America. That's why they get quite a lot of South American players. Um, but the the kind of exception to the rule, I guess, is Manchester City and Gabriel Jesus. Now, Gabriel Jesus is one of those rare talents, a bit like Neymar and Oscar to a degree, where you look at him and you go, "Yeah, he's going to succeed. He's he's brilliant. He's going like there's that's not a risk." Um, and every elite club in Europe wanted Gabriel Jesus. The reason he went to Manchester City was basically because Pep Guardiola tapped him up and uh, poured honey in his ear. And Gabriel Jesus really wanted to work for Pep Guardiola. It wasn't that he wanted to come to the Premier League particularly. Um, I, I don't think he'll be at City after Guardiola leaves. I think he'll go to Spain. Um, it wasn't, man, you know, he didn't grow up watching Niall Quinn and Mike Sheeran. Um, it was because he wanted to play for Guardiola. And Guardiola made a huge personal attempt to woo him and use the existing Brazilian players at Man City um, to kind of do that in the national team as well. So... That's kind of the exception to the rule, but we don't have Pep Guardiola as a manager. So um, in a nutshell, that's why Arsenal and most other English clubs aren't across the Brazil Real talent pool. All right, we're back, and now it's time for the main attraction, which is Clive answering your questions. Now, before we uh, do that, I want to just introduce Clive. First of all, Clive is on Twitter at ClivePAFC. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. Right, so for those of you who have listened to us regularly, this will come as no surprise to you. But for those of you who are still relatively new, uh, the way this works, again, is I am going to ask Clive the questions you've submitted on Twitter, on Facebook, on email, through our website, and then Clive is going to speak intelligently on a topic of his choosing while ignoring your question. So I just want to clarify that so that you're not confused by the format, because it is it does take a little getting used to. I am, of course, used to it, and now you will be as well. So Clive, are you ready for that? Yeah, I'll give it a go, right? They better be good questions, otherwise they're not getting answered. Simple well, as that. so let's start with some amb- ones that I think Inspire a little creativity and fun. Just well, we'll get to the fun ones first. So here's one from Yidu at Yidu uh, on Twitter. That's Y E E D U U U U. He says, or she says, if you can bring back one player that has left Arsenal in the past five years, who would it be? Past five years. Past oh, five crazy. years, and presumably they would not be crocked. So if there were someone that was previously crocked, they would be uncrocked. I think uh, if you think about the new Arsenal we got now with you know Emery and um, the sort of the increased speed, the increased intensity, and the directness of our play, I would probably bring back Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain. Interesting. To our team, I think he's a player that we could do with now rather than the player that we we mixed up. We developed him fantastically. We gave him a defensive side. We always had the directness going forward. 
But now, what Klopp's done is okay. He's injured now, but it's a it's an ligament injury. But before he was injured, he was a first pick in the England eleven. He was a first pick in Liverpool's team. He's smashing goals against Man City. He is playing in a in a in a midfield three. We talk about the right side at Arsenal right now. Can you imagine him in the four two 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 with on that right side driving and also working back defensively? I think he'd be very, very good in this system. So in the last five years, I'd say Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain. And I got his name out just before I was going to say Patrick Vieira, but he gave me a time box, right? Yeah, um, I gave you five years. <laughs> so, but but in, in true fashion, you got to answer the question in a way that you wanted at the very end there too, which Absolutely. is good. Absolutely. I feel like, look, I, I think Ox is an interesting choice. I mean, the funny thing is you could pick someone like Serge Gnabry, you know, Oxlade-Chamberlain, someone that could fill those wide spaces that we're crying out for. Uh, my choice, if I can't have Coughlin or Giroud, which would obviously be my one and two in no particular order, I think you have to say Santi Cazorla. If you could get Cazorla back in peak form, I mean, can you imagine him next to Torreira and just the way that could go? And you could slot him yeah. into really any of that forward line. No, not not really. You're fine with Granite Shaka? Yeah, I, I think Santi Cazorla is a wonderful footballer. Uh, I think what we have now in this system, I like the solidity that the two provide. But let's be honest, right? He's so good. That you'd find a position. You find a place for him. Yeah. <laughs> you find a place for him, and imagine imagine him on the left side of the uh, of the square, if you see what I mean. Yeah, slightly tucked inside, and just let him roam. Where where a has been playing, for example. The yeah, last few exactly. Games, yeah. Mm-hmm. The guy's got hands for feet, right? Given the ball, he just catches it and then does what he likes with it. So, so yeah, you can't ignore that. But I just I'm a, I was always a fan of the Ox, and I think. Um, he was misunderstood by many of us. I think a little bit introspective and we saw some of his weaker moments in an environment where you were allowed to be weak. And I think in this environment, I think it's quite similar to the environment that he's now in at Liverpool. I think it would have been interesting to see where we ended up if he was injury-free. Yeah, another one you could have picked that would have been an interesting shout is Wojciech Szczesny, obviously. Just another one. Yeah, if Tim were on the pod, he'd be crying right now. That's the one Tim would have picked. Yeah, yeah I know. But, um, um, <laughs> just another one. Well, without doubt. Well, look, let's put it this way. We're, we're happy with the players we have. We want for nothing. How about this one from Matt Kent on Twitter, at Matthew, uh, sorry, Matt Kett, I'm sorry, at Matthew Kett on Twitter. Uh is Mkhitaryan a must-pick as he gets more from Bellerin and Aubameyang when he plays and we look more cohesive going forward? I think Mkhitaryan deserves to be picked more. And that's how I would leave it. I think I think he has something. He's a team player. And we can all we can all read things, right? And I, I'm, I've been thinking a lot about analysis lately. See, I'm going off tangent again, Elliot. Watch me, watch me. Um, I, look, I warned, and, I warned everybody ahead, so you don't have to worry. Just forage <laughs> yeah. ahead with whatever footballing genius you've got going on. Well, we, we're all sensible. The people listening to this podcast are sensible. They read content. They read information. They read statistics. They look at average position maps. They look at passing combinations. They can learn about the game through data. Right? And, um, and I look at the game through data, but I look at it through emotion. I look at to how a game feels. And in the end, a game is always about how it feels. If you think about your favorite games, you won't think about, oh, well, that was the greatest game I've ever seen. And guess what? Ozil passed to Shaka 14 times. That's not how it works, right? It's about how you felt during that game. And when I see Mkhitaryan play, I feel this team is better. It's as simple as that. Regardless of the numbers, regardless of where he stands, 
I feel he is better. It's interesting that for Armenia, he played in a defensive midfield position this week. And I've got some Manchester United um, mates that said to me they did it once with him at Old Trafford and he was fantastic. Huh. And this is one of the reasons why I've never been concerned about certain players moving on at the end of contract because I've always felt in a later stage of his career, he can play in the deeper two, he can play in the higher two. I think he's a very talented, multifunctional, hard-working footballer that may not reach the heights. I heard what Louis said on the um, on the on your bonus pod. He may not reach those numbers again, but he is still incredibly effective. And I think he he's a he's a we must pick him more rather than a must pick. If that makes sense. No, I I certainly follow you, and I think it is a testament to his quality and what he brings to the squad that the players we're talking about potentially leaving out of a match day starting 11 to get him in there are players like Mesut Ozil and Aaron Ramsey. And I don't think anybody would have been guessing that just a few months ago. Let's take a question from someone who wrote in on our website, Ronak Parek. I think I'm saying that right. You know what? I'm probably not, but that's me doing my best, and that's all I can do. He says, how impressive are Emery's subs? In every game, his subs are aimed at giving us control over the match, whether we are lagging, leading, or on equal terms. It's no longer as simplistic as throw all the forwards or fullbacks on the pitch every time it's aimed to take control in the match. Um, Obviously, slight towards Arsene Wenger aside, how impressed are you with Emery's subs and sort of the, the changing nature of the way we manage game situations now? Yeah, I like in the way he identifies problems. And um, what's going to be really exciting is when he has players that can fix problems on the pitch so he hasn't got to make substitutions, right? So what this tells you that he, he knows the players that he has, he knows the players that he's bringing on, which is which means, you know, it lends to the, the theory that he's a football obsessive, like to learn this so quickly. I think he's doing fantastically well. And so what he does is he, he increases control and he, he creates a different problem for the opposition. And, you know... I, I I run a team. I don't know if you know that. I run a team. And what I learned was it's not always a team that you pick from the start that's key. Sometimes it's the team that ends the game that's key. And I've learned that through losing games, basically, by having a weaker team at the end of the game than at the, the start of the game. And that's very difficult for fans to absorb because... When the start 11 comes out, we go mental, don't we? If it doesn't quite fit what we want to see. <laughs> yeah. And none of us can, we can barely, if I said to you, name me the, the, the finishing 11s for the games this season, we, we can't. We know the substitution, but we can't, we, our brain doesn't compute the, the team that finishes the game. In many of those games, the team that finished the game was stronger than the team that started the game. And he's worked out in, in elite level sport, you have to wear teams, break teams, earn the right to play, control teams, but finish teams off in the, in the latter part of the game. And uh, some of our best 11s have been at the end of games. And guess what? We've won a lot of games in the second half. So, yeah, he's a he's a very smart guy. And I, I'm very impressed with his um, his speed of getting to know his players and his decision process so far. I, I, I'm very impressed with him. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think that if you're not going to always nail the first 11, which he hasn't, in, in at least in terms of performances, then you have to be someone who's willing to intervene to fix yeah. what you see as being wrong. And the fact that he does that is telling. Now, look, I think Arsene Wenger had a football philosophy that was let the players express themselves. And part of that football philosophy was I'm going to give you an hour or 70 minutes 
to try to solve it yourself, to create the yeah. cohesions and the uh, you know automatisms on the pitch that allow you to solve the problem the game is throwing at you. And he believed in his players to do that. And to to be fair, there were times when it absolutely worked. I mean, he was a very successful manager for a very long time. But I think yeah. in the modern game, the way tactics are evolving, you have to be able to be a little bit more interventionist. And and Emery certainly is willing to, and I've really enjoyed that. Um, well, can I can add a bit more yeah, on top please. of that? I mean, every game has its story, right? Every single game has its individual story. And your job as a coach is to try to control that storyline of the game, right? So you made the assumption that some of the, at the start of games, it hasn't quite been the team that he wanted and he has made adjustments. Well, that could have been his plan all the way along. Right. Again, we are conditioned. Don't forget, we spent 22 years listening to one guy and how he sees the game. And a lot was very much focused on the first 11. And the last 20 minutes was either a salvage act or a saving act. Right. So so he viewed the game slightly differently. And we might look at the game with a different storyline. I think maybe when we get to Liverpool, we will see what team he picks because you can't afford against Liverpool to um, to jog along, seeing how things will go, right? So they'd be interested to see his philosophy will probably come out the next time we play one of the top six, in my opinion. Well, then let's do this. Let's ask a question that relates to that uh, in what we call in the business a segue or oh, a segue. I like I've, heard, I like I've heard it pronounced both ways. Ado at Hand of Emery on Twitter I says him. he is a loyal Patreon follower. So thank you, Ado. Uh, based on our poor results against the top four, over the last few years. Uh, what are you expecting to see different versus Liverpool and Spurs? Uh, those games come up. In fact, I believe we play Spurs and Manchester United back-to-back twice this season, which should be interesting. But as far as the, those those top four games, what differences are you expecting to see, especially given that we've already seen two of those games, but it feels like a million years ago now uh, since we played City and Chelsea? Well, I'm expecting, I just, I'm expecting us to be more competitive. That, that's not... A, that's not an insightful answer. I think we all agree with that. No, but it's I up think... to the standard I would provide. You know, let me say, let's say, like, I, you know what, Clive? I'm expecting us to be more competitive. What are you expecting? Well, I'm expecting us to be more competitive, if I didn't say that before. But what I am expecting is what these results have, have given us is a sense of belief. And um, the belief is sort of washing its way through the club, right? So I, I can't wait for Leicester. I can't wait for it. Because I've got a very strong feeling we're going to win the game, right? So, so when belief and momentum gets rolling, you don't fear these games. And and I am looking forward to the next top six games because I'm not I'm not afraid of them. And the reason why I'm not afraid of them is, and you've heard me mention this a thousand times. I think we're playing the we're doing the basics better. We're doing the fundamentals of the game better. We're doing things properly. There's a normalisation to Arsenal. We, with the talent that we have that's taken us to a, to a new level. And people are starting to look and say, well, I'm not too sure. What are they all about? Who they played? But we have some jewels in the crown which are in the right parts of the pitch. If we get them on the pitch consistently, I think we are looking quite good. I think we're looking better than Manchester United. And I think we're looking... Better than Spurs due to circumstance of Spurs players basically playing day and night for the last two years. And I think we're I think Spurs injury issues will get worse. Losing Christian Eriksen will be a major problem. And I see us really competing. 
Uh, but the first time we get a result against one of these teams, if we beat Fulham 5-1 and you saw the reaction to that, can you imagine if you beat Liverpool or Spurs, what will really happen, especially if it's away? The club will explode in belief. The players will explode in belief. The fans will explode. Everything will roll from that moment onwards. Right? And so that's what I'm looking forward to. And I and I am not... OK, it's dependent on the players we have on the pitch who's fit and available. But I'm not afraid of these games anymore. I'm, I'm actually looking forward to them. I don't think we're going to get run off our feet for one because we're doing our basics right. And I think... Um, we got a good chance. Got yeah, a good chance. it's tough, right? I mean, I'm fascinated for these games to come up because it seemed to me in both the City and Chelsea game that Emery had a very clear plan for those games. And in the subsequent games against all these lesser teams, with offense intended, um, I think we've had less of a plan that was more just kind of like, I'm going to put all my best attacking players out there and I think they'll get it done, and they have. And not all of the performances have been vintage, to say the least, the full yeah. performance aside. But I think to some extent, there wasn't a lot needed. They were very basic game plans predicated on letting a superior attacking talent win out. I'm excited to see the specific strategies he comes up with for teams like Spurs and Liverpool, and Liverpool in particular, um, you know, to go head-to-head with Klopp, to go head-to-head with Pochettino and see what he comes up with. I thought he had a really interesting strategy for the Chelsea match to exploit their weakness um, in the fullback position, in particular Alonso, and it, it worked uh, from an attacking standpoint. Defensively, it was kind of a shambles. And then we called off the dogs in the second half and got punished for it. He kind of lost his nerve a little bit. I'll be curious to see which way he goes in these games. And to your point, you know, I, I expect us to be more competitive I think the thing that was frustrating with Arsene Wenger is just when we went up against the big sides the last few seasons, they just looked so prepared for what we were going to do. And we very often were not able to trouble them because they looked very prepared for us. And the one thing that I know is I don't think there's an Arsenal fan that can tell you what our strategy will be in those big games. And certainly the opposition managers will be struggling to figure that out too. So if nothing else, there will be an element of surprise. And I think that will play in our favor. I also absolutely think that we have not seen the best of our attacking talent in these last nine games because we've been playing teams that aren't going to be as open. But you know, against these teams that are going to attack more, that are going to leave space behind, that, that might play a slightly higher line. I mean, Spurs, for example, if we can transition quickly against them, I think you could see the best of what this attacking talent can do. So very excited for all of that. And uh, you know, we don't have to wait too long. Liverpool comes up after the Leicester and Palace match. So that's yeah. our, th- our third league match from now. Um, another great question, and one that I think is timely, given that uh, Thierry Henry has just been named the manager at Monaco. This is from Geraint Williams. Geraint, Ger- I wish Paul was here right now. D- do you know how this is said? He told me once. Geraint. Geraint. Thank you. Geraint Williams. I'm sorry, Geraint, and you are a uh, regular interactor with us, and, and I should get that it burned into my brain. Geraint we Williams. But- we keep butchering his name. Uh, well, you say we, but I, you can just say you, Elliot, keep butchering his name. Uh, at G-W-N-N-E-R. Gwinner. Geraint. Geraint. Say it. Geraint. Geraint. I'm not going to forget it again, Geraint, I promise. He uh, he does ask, though, which of our former players is most likely to become our head coach in the future? Uh, do you see Henri as a future Arsenal manager? Yeah, he could be. Um, he could be. I think. Um, I mean, don't he gets forget that could be Vieira, could be Arteta. You have to pick one. Who Who do you think is most likely to become our head coach of the, the players that are out there? I I think we're going to see a couple of players become head coaches. Ta. In time. 
<laughs> no, 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 I don't see T.A. The one I, the one I think could become a head coach if he wants to be a head coach is Per Mertesacker. Oh, I interesting. Think, yeah. I think that guy is a special human being. Now, if he decides I really want to focus on coaching and rather than being a teacher and then he wants to do that with adults, his stature is significant and I think he has got the stature to be a head coach. So um, I also think Thierry Henry could, could do it, but a lot would depend on how he goes in, the, in this role. I think people in England have a, a view of him based on their perception of his punditry, and they forget the fact that for a couple of years he had he was the best player in the world, and that takes a special mentality and a special human being to be that person. We think of all the millions of people that play the game to be the best player in the world for two to three years, or definitely the best player the Premiership's ever seen. You're a special person, and don't worry about the things, how he delivers a message in his second language. Think about the mentality it takes to get to that level, to do what he's done in the game and want everything possible to win in the game. So for me, that special personality will come out at some point in his coaching life. Let's see how far it takes us. If he was to be successful at Monaco, I think it'd be a slam dunk that he, that he comes to Arsenal and we would expect it as well. We'd all be calling for it, but regardless of what happens to Emery because it's a natural fit, right? So, um, But the, my little side bet is per Matasaka, just for the pure calibre of individual. I think he's a wonderful statesman, but I think he may end up in the role at Arsenal that's Bigger than the coach role, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think he. I think he's a leader, but he may not want to be the everyday coach. Yeah, no, I I could see that. I, it's it's interesting because obviously Henri is the name on everyone's lips, but you look at Arteta, who was nearly our our coach, if you believe reports, and Murta Sacker is making his way up through the ranks, and uh, Vieira is certainly a candidate, uh, someone who's a a rising star in the coaching ranks, and and now Thierry Henri takes over at Monaco which is sort of a production line for Arsenal to some extent. So very, very interesting to see what happens. Let, let's get back to the, the current team, though, and, and a setup that I've been interested in and uh, certainly a player that I know you have strong feelings about. This is from Palab Sen on Twitter, at Sen underscore Palab. Is Terrera Ramsey mid... Uh, let's just say this in English. Is a Terrera Ramsey midfield worth a try, or do you guys think Ramsey is too ill-disciplined positionally in a midfield too? And then he goes on to say, I am talking the 4-2-2-2 formation we played against Fulham. Um, whether it's a 4-2-2-2 or any uh, formation, would you like to see Ramsey getting a shot in the two with Terrera? Um, not for me. Um, well, I'll say not for me. I think there are others that could do that job as well, right? And I think if you put Ramsey there, what what are you saying? Are you saying, I, you're now saying that I'm going to change our system. So rather than have a double pivot that's quite disciplined, left and right, or just one slide in front of the other, distances kept close to make sure they can, they can tag team on the press and tag team in the challenge. And when one of them gets it, they've got an exit. If you're, th if you're saying that doesn't work for you, and you want to leave that one individual on his own and and have somebody work into his primary skill set, which is breaking from deep, then you're literally saying that the way we're playing is not the way you like us to play. And you're now accommodating names into the into the team so that you can get your other favorite names into the team. 
And that's for me, is not the game, right? So the game for me, you need to have a level of humility when you play in those deep positions. You're now saying to yourself, I am this player and I am facilitating for other players. And I don't think that suits Ramsey's psychology. And that's not a criticism. It's just a style thing. And I don't think anyone can argue against that. There's been occasions when he has done that, when he has been tasked to do that, and he has done that. But he chooses to play another way. And other managers, Wenger played him in that too. and He played him deep. But his international managers, the new manager, have played him higher. And they recognise that the team needs a platform. And the platform that Ramsey provides is not the platform that's sustainable for a league title chasing team. And it's not it, I, it's not a criticism when I say that it's just, it's just obvious, right? It's just obvious. Just watch closely when situations happen in the game and watch the default reaction of a player that thinks about space, thinks about opportunity, thinks about joining the attack. He's got an attacking mindset with a centre midfielder's body and game. Now he just needs to decide what he wants to be. So for me, I see other players like Guendouzi, I see Maitland-Niles, I see Shaka, I see Torreira as my first four for that central two deeper role. And if Ramsey stays at Arsenal, which wouldn't upset me greatly if the price was right, he's definitely one of the, the higher two you know what I mean, in the square. Yeah. Yeah, look, I it's tough for me, right? Because I've seen Ramsey and Shaka dominate City and Chelsea's midfield on the way to an FA Cup. Granted, that was in a back three, and that changes things yeah. a lot. Um, and, and I understand that. And I've I've made that point probably too many times on this podcast. I think the thing that's one, interesting... One game, though, Elliot. It's one game, isn't it? It's one game. Well, two. Yeah, I mean, the City game and the Chelsea game, I yeah. think they both played there. But no, and, you're right. And, 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 and you could say that the City game, the City game in the FA Cup semifinal, you know... Alexis won that game for us, really, with his ingenuity at the yep. top end of the pitch. And Welbeck drove them back. And, and Ramsey was part of that story, absolutely. And uh, he's had some major big games for us. But I don't... We're starting to, we're starting to talk less about centre midfield at the moment because we see something that's sustainable and right and proper. We want to see it tested against some of the greater teams. And when it's tested against those teams and they can still produce then we're going to say this This feels good, right? Yeah. And then we're going to look at other areas of the team. So. And I'll tell you this much. I think if Genduzzi continues on the trajectory of development that we think he's on, that we assume he's on, that come next season, a Genduzzi and Torreira midfield could be, or midfield two could be really uh, interesting to look at and really exciting. Because while I like Shaka to some extent, and I like some of the things he does, I think the weaknesses in his game are still significant enough to hold us back. But I think if Ganduzi can just add a little bit of that defensive responsibility and awareness to his game, then I think a partnership with Torreira and Ganduzi could be really exciting, but I maybe agree. just a little too soon for that. So how about this? You, you like thinking about uh, youth development, the some of the younger players. So uh, Liam at GunnerLJC on Twitter asks, who was the player you first saw as a youngster that you thought would be a world beater at Arsenal, but it didn't materialize? Okay, I've got loads of these, right? But um, <laughs> I, let me let me just do a couple, right? So, um, Armand Traore, I remember seeing him in the Dennis Bergkamp first game at the Emirates, and he put in a tackle on the left hand side of the pitch, and I I was in shock at his speed, his power. I was convinced we just found the new Stuart Pearce, but better, and I thought that's it. 
we've got a world class player here. And it just and it just <laughs> in this it just never materialised. It just never happened. That was a that was a big shock for me. Um I think another one I, I did I did like Danielson at the early stage of his career and he seemed to fade away. Um I also liked Henry Lansbury at the stage of his career and he faded away. Um I also should I, should I keep going? I mean, yeah, I why not? Going? I can tell you who mine is, and it is J. Emmanuel Thomas. I mean, I that guy just was too physically imposing for that level of football. And it, I don't know if it was work rate or technical skill or what it was. It didn't translate at the senior level, but man, did he look like he was going to be unstoppable? Yeah, he was a he was a an absolute beast at youth level, and I I sort of learned a little bit more about this now about the biology and of youth players and when people hit puberty and, and when they dominate. There's another player at Arsenal who was very, very, very good when he was young called Chuck Zaniki. Oh, yeah. And he, he, was a, he was a monster player. He just run through teams at youth level. But then they, then they stopped growing. And what you find with, with players that grow quickly is they hit a plateau. And, they've, and what, they, what happens then, Elliot, they have to then fix problems when they meet men that are just as big as them. And because they've always dominated at youth level, they've never had to solve the problems that come when someone's physically as strong as you. So when they reach a certain age and they're suddenly they're playing with men, they suddenly drop down the pecking order, right? So that happened to J. Manuel Thomas. They definitely happened to Chuck Zaniki, who's now playing at Milton Keynes Dons, which is very close to where I live. So, um, and he just found his level. And if he, you, you're looking at players, when you're looking at youth development, always look at the players who are slightly slighter, slightly slimmer in leg, slightly more athletic at 16, 17. And then you're looking for that explosion of physicality around 18, 19. A great example of that is Emil Smith-Rowe. If you just look at a picture of him, maybe just 14 months ago, he looks like a child. His shoulders are only two foot wide. He literally is it's just slopey shoulders. There's not a lot there. He wasn't very tall. He had the ability, but he didn't have the physicality. Literally over a six-month period, he's now looks like a six-footer, strapping, sprinting speed. He's got his broader set. Look at his leg shape now. Completely different. And that's the sort of player with the trajectory that you want, right? And another one that is is Maitland-Niles. Just look at his physicality compared a couple of years ago. I know he's been slowed down through injury, but you want to look for things in their physique. I talked to a guy called Phil, Phil Simmons on Twitter, and we both have a similar view about how to spot player potential. There are things you can look at around their hamstrings, back of knees, Look at their look at their leg shape. Look at how they move. Look at their dynamic. Then you ally that to technical ability. Then you can spot ceilings. You can spot ceilings. And I'm getting better at this now. I never used to know it. Uh, I used to, I know some football scouts. And I would sit with them and they would say to me, that player over there, Jaw. I'd say, well, he just looks like all the rest. And I just couldn't see it. And then eventually you learn and you learn and you learn. And you can, and you get, you, it's never, it's never foolproof but you can pick players that are going to go further forward. And I'm getting better at it and more confident. But in the end, it's all about opinion and the variables come along like injury and coaches not picking mm. your right position and things like that, which can kill a career. Of course, yeah. Well, you had to get better at it if you thought Armand Traore was good because I saw him concede eight <laughs> goals at Old Trafford pretty much on his own. So <laughs> Those know. people who was at the Dennis Bergkamp game... 
they know what I mean. I'm, I'm, just, I'm I mean. just giving you some shit. That's uh, okay. <laughs> All right, look, let's wrap up with this. Um, let's just have uh, a, a couple more. We'll do two more real quick. Um, because this podcast, when I stitch it all together, is going to be quite a long one. This is from Schwinn at AFC Schwinn on Twitter. One current footballer that you'd like to bring to Arsenal. No Messi, no CR7. And the caveat is they're replacing a player in the starting 11. So, you know, if you pick an Mbappe, for example, it's in lieu of an Aubameyang or Lacazette. So who's the player you'd bring in and who would you repl- who would they be replacing? Okay. So there's, there's actually a... It's actually two. <laughs> of course, there are. <laughs> who are the two players you bring in, and who would they replace? I, I need to get their names right, right? So there's a. And I'm thinking this. These are serious people that I think, if they came in, would significantly change how how we how we're viewed, right? There's a young left back at PSG called. If I get his name wrong, I think it's Stanley Ensoki, right? And he's about 19. He looks he looks very similar to um, to Bendy at Man City, and he's a monster left back, very dynamic, very strong. I I do like him. Um, I think we need left back, a younger left back, that's going to change how we look. I think Bellerin does a, a good dynamic job on the right hand side, but on the left hand side, I don't think we've quite got the player that we need. So I I would I would look at him, and I'm, I'm picking a player that I. Another PSG player, actually, that um, is it Kempembe, yeah, the centre half. Mm-hmm. I I really like him. I think he's, I think he's got, I think he's he's already a, he's no surprise. But again, it would be very good if we could get a player like that out of PSG. I know it's going to be very difficult, but they're struggling where to play Marquinhos. You never know; they may be stupid enough. But those type of players, they're the ones that I think would would change us change how we feel, change how we're perceived defensively. I think we need to add recovery speed and a bit more power in these areas. Socrates has come in. He showed us a bit more power than we expected. He's a 30-year-old Greek international, and we're all excited by his power in, in contact. Imagine we had a couple more that were younger more and for, and for the future. So uh, I think we've, we've maybe... Um, Missed a trick there and, and should have gone younger sooner. But I recognise that when you're trying to establish yourself back to the top level, you can't mess about with young, youngsters in defence until you're established. So if you get top four, I'd like to see us go for a couple of younger defenders. So that's a good answer. That's that's galaxy brain. I was just thinking, like, how about Eden Hazard and Luka Modric? <laughs> you know, like, uh, <laughs> you know what, if, what if we just do it the easy way and just get, like, really <laughs> awesome established players and just, you know, win the league now? But, you Another know, I've heard both I like ways. <laughs> Another player I like is, uh, I think, would do well in this, in this system, and it just makes sense. And we're just not – sometimes the simplest answers are the best. Lacazette, I think, is a, a big part of our future. And the player they had the most success with was Fikir and Leon. Yeah, okay. And I, and, I, and I just think I like to see a bang-bang shooter in behind two strikers. I think it'll make us again dynamic. You know Aaron again, Ramsey look. likes to take a shot from time to time. Yeah, <laughs> but, he's, but he keeps running past the centre forwards. Yeah, he needs to stay behind the ball. <laughs> he stays behind the ball, then we'll see his shooting. And, um, but again, you judge some of these players come out of the French League, you can't always judge them. But I just keep thinking back to what Fakir did to City. And he had them running ragged, didn't he, on their pitch and smash one in and was all over them. If we could transfer that into Arsenal, I think that will lift us to a new level. Yeah, I think that's well said. You know what? I think we should leave it there. We've got uh, Leicester City at the weekend, and oh, I say at the weekend, we have them on Monday. 
We don't, and we don't even not only play on Saturdays anymore. We don't even play on Sundays now. Now we play on Monday, which is, by the way, just hilarious because, I don't know if you noticed this, the Premier League has been kind enough to put us on Monday when we have Europa League away on Thursday. So yeah, thanks, Premier League. Way to protect your, your teams. But that's, that's all. That's all they care about. Anyway, um, Clive, always a pleasure. Really appreciate it. This was fun. We'll do another mailbag on the not-too-distant future. But I thought you stayed fairly well on topic, and I'm proud of you. And I tried my best, man. You, I tried you, my best. You were brilliant, as always. Clive's on Twitter at ClivePAFC. Thanks, Clive. Thank you very much. My name's Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Leave us a five-star review. Write nasty things about us in the comments. We love you. We adore you for listening. We appreciate you, and we thank you for sending in all your questions. We hope you'll join us probably for a halftime show on Monday, certainly for a post-match podcast after that. Friday on Patreon, Tim will have his match preview. Uh, And if you're a subscriber there, once again, thanks very much for that. So we are back with Premier League action. Project 24 is now just six points away. Uh, Clive, I gave you credit for naming Project 24, by the way, when Scott tried to claim it one too many times earlier in the podcast. That's okay. Look after me. Look after me. Look after me. I did. So let's keep it going. Project 24, here we go. We will talk to you after Arsenal 10. Lester nil.